You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to the first episode of Man Marking. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening. Man Marking was created to use football as a conduit to encourage men to feel more comfortable talking about their mental health. As of 2020, suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 in the UK. We at Man Marking know that we need to start talking and we need to start talking now. So, where's the talking, lads? Joining me today... And hopefully on every episode, is Tony Bellew impersonator and Wirral's greatest cricketer. It's Anthony Olsen. Hello, Ant. Hi. How are we? I'm not bad, mate. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad. There was a glowing uh, introduction from yourself. <laughs> well, you know, just here to please, mate. Just here to please. And alongside Ant, we have the founder of Men Two, and the only member of the Man Marking team to beat me in Strictly Come Dirty Dance in 2019. It's Katie Taylor-Smith. Hello, Katie. Hi, hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Katie. How about yourself? I'm all right, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good very to be good. a part of it. Fantastic. Thank you very much for being with us, Katie. And finally, last but not least, the only man who will come out of lockdown leaner than he started and the most handsome man in the CH42 area, it's Ryan Pulford. Hello, Ryan. Well, that's an embarrassing intro, isn't it? And certainly not true. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> mate. How's it going? I'm good, mate. How about yourself? Yeah, very well, thanks. Our first episode saw us speak to Kevin Cowley. Kevin is a survivor of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989, in which 97 Liverpool fans died. You may be thinking only 96 Liverpool fans died, but there was in fact the 97th, Stephen Whittle, who took his own life 22 years after the disaster. This episode is in memory of Stephen and of all the other 96 people that lost their lives at Hillsborough and all the hundreds and thousands of families who've been affected in the years since. And so, first of all, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of how this interview came about? Yeah, so basically it came about by a, by a bit of a chance, really. Um, I was browsing on Twitter when I should have probably been doing work and came across a tweet that kind of struck me from Kevin. Um, you know, the beauty of algorithms on Twitter at the moment is that you get all sorts of tweets that pop onto your timeline and, I didn't really know this was going to be one that would lead us down a, uh, an amazing path to an amazing story, um, but it did. Um, so we, I liked the tweet, and then I think me and yourself had a conversation, and and we thought, you know what, we'll, we'll see what Kevin's story's like, and I think it's one of the best decisions we made, to be honest, in the last couple of years, or <laughs> certainly on my behalf, because it was really, um, it was really fascinating to listen to, and out of it came so many things, which I'm sure. We're going to touch upon later, but you know it. It was really, really nice of Kevin to give us his, give us his time and and give us his account of that that day. And, and men's mental health within football. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do do an interview for for Man Marking, Kev? Yeah, um, because I was um, a survivor of the Hillsborough disaster. I was in Pentry, 
and um, what happened on that day uh, affected basically the rest of my life. Um, it affected me finishing my A-levels, it affected the choices that I made and what happened was I sort of buried everything deep inside and I wouldn't talk about it, I didn't tell people about it but it was slowly sort of eating away at me and I would have like coping mechanisms which really weren't working but I'd used them for so many years and um, it was the birth of my first son that really took the lid off it and my PTSD sort of just went all over the place, which I was never diagnosed with, but I was suffering from. Um, and I sort of, again, continued to ignore it because I thought, oh, you know, I'm a man. I can't sort of show I've got any weakness or show that I've got PTSD. And it was only really recently that um, I'd had a big sort of uh, setback with all the sort of publicised court proceedings. And I thought, I've got to take control of this. I've got to be the one that is in control of this, and that's not in control of me. So finally started to do um, cognitive behaviour therapy, which I did online to the NHS. And uh, I wanted to sort of come on to speak about it, because um, if I can do it, and I've spent so many years ignoring it, uh, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Your relationship with football, what was that like before Hillsborough? Uh, much like a lot of us, it was as strong as it could be. Um, grew up in a football mad family. Um, you know, uncles vying for you to follow their team, but it was the Reds that got me. Um, and it was everything to me. Um, you know, from a young kid, I remember the 77 FA Cup final, sort of crying at me nan and granddads, and a couple of days later crying with sort of joy uh, after uh, Rome. And it just became everything in my life. I had to be every game that I could from the earliest points. You know, like a lot of us, travelling with friends, school friends, older brothers, um, and travelling around the country watching some of the greatest teams. So everything I did was geared towards the match. And when I was old enough to get um, a Saturday job, which, by the way, was outside Burton's in Church Street with a sign saying you get bags more buzz at Burton's, um, I've got a bit of money together to go to the match myself. And, you know, it was and is now again everything. So, obviously, that Hillsborough disaster is a it's a turning point for not well for football, not just a single individual as well. Um, how's football after that moment for you? Um, I mean, immediately afterwards, I stopped going for around about eleven years, and wow. so. Um, you know, from being someone who couldn't live without it, I couldn't stand to be there. Um, I went to the Arsenal game, the most publicised Michael Thomas game, mm. and I felt physically sick. I couldn't be on the cop, I couldn't be with people around me, um, and I had to make a change. I knew that. And so I tried to sort of just watch it from a distance. And when I went back, um, it just happens out of the blue. I think someone offered me a ticket for... I think it was a Leeds game at Anfield, must have been 2000, something like that, and I went back. Um, I couldn't believe the changes in the place, how it, it felt like the demographic of people that went the game had stopped or changed. Um, and I couldn't believe um, the change in the derby. That was the thing that struck me the most. I was looking at people having arguments over the derby, and I thought, look, we've never been like the best of friends, but it was never like this. 
Um, so the change in it was huge, and obviously the commercialization um, affected the prices. Um, and that was the big thing for me, was actually getting back into the swing of it and, you know, getting back to being a regular match goer. Did it take a while to enjoy that game again? It did, yeah. Um, it, it didn't feel like, um, not that I belonged, but that I was comfortable there for a, for a long time. Um, I'd have like coping mechanisms that I'd have to do. I'd have to be in early. I couldn't be in late and have a couple of, you know, late bevies and then getting in. Um, and I had to wait until everyone went. I had to sort of be there close to the end of an aisle and loads of things were going on for me. And that just started to become my norm. And during the 80s, I mean, my um, dissertation was on the, the way the media portrayed um Liverpoolians in the wider area of the northwest in general, um, and Merseyside. I mean, um, the seventies and eighties were quite difficult for Scousers. You know, Liverpool were winning everything up and down the country, and so were Everton were winning, winning a few things as well. Um, but they became the the butt of the jokes, and even in like many sketch shows on like Saturday night television. You know, you're looking at Harry Enfield and the like. Were you comfortable with those perceptions of, of Liverpoolians or Scousers before Hillsborough? Um, I never really saw the, the bad sides of it because, you know, much like Hall, I used to enjoy watching bread and, you know, you could sort of identify with people that you knew yourself and it was light-hearted. Um, it just felt that post post Heisel, post-Hillsborough, yeah. um, people's perceptions of Liverpool became sort of entrenched from those sorts of caricatures. You know, you couldn't go anywhere without going, oh, you're not going to have me out of capsize, or I can't give you that to all because you'll probably nick it. And yeah. you'd start off by having a little, like, joke and think, you know, but you'd see that a lot of people actually believed it, you know, and it just... I think the more it went on, the more people now think that that's still true. Yeah, it, and it's amazing. I mean, we... We're not from Liverpool, we're from the Wirral, which is only three miles away, but our accents are similar. So when we go away or when we go to even just to Manchester, you know, you're getting called all sorts or anywhere in the country you get, you know, and it is light-hearted banter at times, but there are people, like you say, who do believe it. Yeah. And it, it's it's difficult to deal with because, you know, you can't really get a word in edgeways sometimes. And trying to change someone's perception of you as a person is, is difficult. And I'm sure... You know, you, you've dealt with that. You know, you live in London at the moment. Um, so I imagine that must have been quite hard. Yeah, it was sort of like a double-down situation, really, because, you know, you'd have a going on, but I suppose if you lived at home, you wouldn't feel that bad about it. You'd think, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. But down here, you know, you come across people every day and their immediate perceptions would be you start speaking and they sort of take a step back. I have to say, more and more recently down here, I've found that it's become... Uh, not acceptable, but people enjoy uh, Liverpool and the Scouse accents, and there's a lot of sort of um, change in, in how people view the city. Um, you know, when I left, as we all know, in the 80s, it was a very, very different place. And now it's become like a huge tourist trap. And you hear people, and I get people saying, I'd love to go to Liverpool. I can't, I'd love to see what it's like. So it is starting to change, but down here, at the start in the 90s, yeah, it was definitely... Harry Enfield, calm down and all that business. Yeah. And that the nineties for a lot of people seem to think that the it was one article written by the Sun um about Hillsborough and 
it was actually it carried on throughout. It was the rhetoric throughout uh, most uh, newspapers uh, to sort of belittle scousers. Um, I was thinking I was mentioning before to to the lads about uh, Jonathan Margolis after the um, Jamie Bulger murder yeah. wrote about South Pity City. Um, so what was that like? You know, you've gone from one horrendous disaster to, to another terrible tragedy and people are sticking a boot in in the media. That, that's got to be difficult. Yeah, and it's like the trickle-down effect, isn't it? It becomes um, almost, um, the tr- <laughs> for want of a better phrase, it becomes someone's truth. Mm. Um, you know, they've heard something, they believe it, they pass it on. And you find yourselves in conversations, I would very often, and people would be telling me something and I'd be going, no, that's not what happened. Um, I had a conversation with someone once about what happened in the tunnel at Hillsborough and he was telling me that everyone died in the tunnel. I went, no, they didn't. Well, that's what I... I said, well, I was there, mate, you know. And you'd have them saying, well, that's not... you know." So, yeah, the whole culture um, and the media as a whole turned and had that ability to do so because they were empowered to do it by what the, the mass media did. And it's amazing, isn't it? Because the I don't think a lot of people remember uh, Mackenzie being the one who's in charge of son and you know, gave the right to, to go ahead with that article. Do you remember the guy who did the article? I, no. No? <laughs> Sorry, no? So his name was Harry Arnold and he was given an MBA, which um, for services to journalism. He's passed away recently. Um, but he also worked for the Mirror as well, which is, I find amazing. Um, Jonathan Margolis used to work for the Times, also worked for the Mirror as well, which again is something I find amazing uh, to try and change and go from saying one thing to saying something completely different is, is quite astounding, really. Yeah. Um, and back in 2008, Mark Oldis actually did a, an article saying, Liverpool, I love you, which was a, a kind of an apology. I don't know whether you saw it, um, but it was kind of an apology to the city of Liverpool. But it came about around the time of the European capital culture. Yeah. Um, and I think that was quite a kind of a watershed moment for the city and the, the surrounding areas. Um, did you notice a change in the way Liverpool was viewed after that moment, after that award? Yeah, very much so. You know, not looked upon as sort of the run-down Liverpool of the eighties. You know, the the place that no one wanted to go and with no-go areas. It it turned into somewhere that was what I think the city's always been. It's aspirational. It's uh, it's a restless city, but it's got so much culture in it. It's got so much creativity that um, I think people are starting to recognise what Liverpool truly is now. Um, and as for the, you know, the apologies, I don't think there is an apology out there that can cover 31 years of lies and what it did to so many thousands of us. I don't think there's an apology that can cover that. Kevin, in your own words, could you tell us about that day? Start, well, i had been going to a ways for a while. Um, went with me mate from school or his brother and you know I would go to every game that I could and um, I was a season ticket holder on the cop and so um, I'd been to Hillsborough the year before 
and we were in Pentry, um, because it was the cheapest, wasn't it? You know, terrace tickets and what have you. Um, and the year before, I was just to the right of the goalpost. So when Aldridge scored the second goal, practically a couple of feet away, celebrating with us, and I loved that. I loved to be close to the players. Um, anyone that knows me will tell you I'm still a, a proper Liverpool anorak. And um, I was then, and I always probably will be. And the year of um, the disaster, we got there. Not really late, but later than we had done because of the traffic problems on Snake Pass. And um, I was 17. And um, contrary to what my me, uh, me mates would say, I didn't have a train. I didn't, uh, it wasn't my thing. Um, we were all just wanting to get in. And um, we got there, walked down. And noticed the real difference was that uh, the year before there'd been cordons and it was like they were stopping you. Where's your ticket? Where are you going? That sort of stuff, which I never really had a problem with because, you know, at the end of the day, you were getting in and that was it. But the year of Hillsborough, it was almost like um, they'd abandoned their posts and they weren't there. And we were just given free reign to walk up to these, you know, minimal amounts of turnstiles for how many thousands of us that were going into that ground. And it was only because I'd been there the year before that I was sort of, you know, quite all, all right with where I was going. Um, but um, I never knew there was another entrance into them central pens with the ones to the left and right. I'd never really looked, and it was never really something I thought about. Um, and I went straight down that tunnel that day with me mate from school. We'd seen some other mates outside who we were at school with, and um, it was just quite... It was weird because you couldn't stand and talk because we had the little thing where we'd like have a little natter who's going to be playing, blah, 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 see you out here later. And we couldn't even do that because everyone was going towards these turnstiles and it, you could tell it was different. Um, there was no, no disorder. There was just no organisation. And there was people getting panicked by the fact that they were in this mass scrum to get in. Um, and the lad that I went with got turned around in the crowd and, his jacket came off and managed to pull it back. And we got in the ground. And we must have been in the ground about 10 past two, something like that. So not really late, but quite late for us because I always wanted to be there to see them warm up and all that business. Um, and we, the year before, as I said, had been down bottom right and there was no chance we were getting there. It was like shock before you could even decide where you wanted to go. And we walked down past the um, the middle sort of fence in between three and four, the two pens. And it was a question of, we're not getting much further in here because there's nowhere to go. And we were sort of up towards the back on the right-hand side, just close to the middle fence. And um, it was a lovely day. That's the thing that strikes me the most. It was the most beautiful day. Um, you know, even this week, the weather, I just keep saying... It's a perfect day for football, isn't it? And in my mind, that's the best weather for football, you know, sort of Easter time and the sun's out and it's warm. And um, it just started to get more and more chocker and you couldn't move. I mean, we're all um, in a football crowd trying to look like we can cope and we're all right. And even at 17, I haven't got a 17-year-old now, you know, you feel like you're invincible, don't you? So you're never going to show weakness. You're not going to say, I don't like this. But um, I'm sure lots of people were thinking the same because uh, the heat was, was coming down and I couldn't move. 
and it had filled up around me and I kept thinking, oh, they'll stop it soon. There'll be no one coming in. But they let it carry on. And I thought to myself, I just wanted um I want to move my hands up, um, just to sort of move around a bit and get a bit of air. And I couldn't. I couldn't move my hands. I couldn't get my hands in my pockets. Um, I couldn't do anything. And it was getting warmer and warmer. And I could feel the sweat trickling down the back of my neck. And I just felt uncomfortable. And I started to feel a bit sort of like woozy, sort of like hot, you know. And um, my mate had moved off to the right. I mean, the surges on the terraces were moving up and down. And, and he'd gone off to the right. And just over everything, I started to hear just people moaning. Not like, oh, you know, moaning, moaning, but moaning as in, like, uncomfortable moaning. Grown men, people stopped talking. You could see people going pale and sweaty, and they couldn't have a conversation with you. They were just, everyone seemed to be in the middle of this nightmare. And it was almost like it was happening to you, but there was no one to take you out of it. And um, it started to get more hot, and I started to feel more faint. But eventually the team came out. And I thought, I'll be all right now, because we'll everyone will sort of move around and the game's going to start, so, you know, it'll be all right. And it struck me that I couldn't get my hands above my head to clap them out. I couldn't move my arms. Um, we always had this thing where we stood with sort of a crash barrier, either just behind us or close to it, so you knew you weren't going to get buffeted everywhere. And even with that, it was like being... And there's a bit of a pop reference for all the young kids. It's like being in a phone box with about 30 people and no one's moving and you can't move. And you just, you start to panic. You know, everything inside of you tells you that this isn't the norm. And um, the game started and it was almost like it was happening, but somewhere else. And I just remember looking around at the clouds and just thinking, how can this be going on? It was like an out-of-body experience. And... Um, the last thing I remember for the game, I'm sure for a lot of people, is Peter Baisley in the bar at, the, at their end. And um, that was it. And obviously, the, the crowd noise of that happening, whoever was still waiting to come into the pens, not knowing what was going on or what it was like in there, came into the pens without being shown to the side pens, which, by the way, before the game I'd looked at, and I was seeing people sunbathing and stretching out and thinking, what's going on in there when we're all like this in here? And that was it, really, because when that happened, um, the sound that stayed with me for many years was the sound of one of the crash barriers buckling because it went under the strain of people. And everyone went down like in a tap dance forward. And I'm going down, I'm going down. And I'm under, I'm, I'm just under the people. Um, and I don't know where I am, you know. Don't know how long I was under there. Um, and I sort of get myself together and pull myself up. And I'm down near the front left of the pen, which is where, obviously, the worst has happened to the poor people at the front, which would have been me the year before, you know. And um, I had this moment with um, a guy next to me with, like, long, dark hair and was all sweaty. And um, the panic in his eyes must have been matched by my own. And um, there was screaming and there was crying and... Sounds that you don't associate with a football game. And I saw him and he looked at me. And it was one of those situations where we both thought, got to get out of this. 
And the only way to get out of it, because you couldn't free your arms really and you couldn't run or do anything, was to try and leverage yourself on someone to get out, which, believe you in me, has taken me 31 years to be able to say. And only recently have I been able to sort of reprocess and this and talk about it. And um, I sort of used his body to get me out of that situation, to sort of leverage up on him and get out. And there was a lad just straddling the two fences. And he had his hand down. He was just shouting, take me hand, take me hand. And um, I had to sort of get up on him. And then I had to stand on the people at the front, who we all know now, but you don't really like to think about. And um, I took his hand and he pulled me up. And uh, I managed to get on the um, central fence and the front fence and leveraged myself over and, and I jumped down and looked back into, you know, the face of hell really, isn't it? You know, it sounds really melodramatic, but I've never wished that on anyone and certainly not a 17-year-old lad like myself at the time because you've got, got any clue what you're going to do. I was on my own. My mate had gone. Don't know where he'd gone. Um, and you're just there, and you're in, you're in the big world on your own as a 17-year-old, and you've just seen people die in front of your eyes. And, um, and obviously pretty soon after that, the game stopped. No memory of the players. I mean, again, you know, Anarak me. And my mates laugh at me now because anything with a live bird or a player, I'm right there. But um, that day, it couldn't have been Kenny Dalgleish rolling the ball at me, but it wouldn't have bothered me because I didn't see any of them. They just, it wasn't happening for me, they'd gone. And then that's when people started to come out, get lifted out, um, and didn't really know what to do, didn't know first aid or resource or anything like that. But people were getting put onto advertising hoardings, and I just thought, well, that could have been me, it could be anyone I know, it could be one of my mates, family. Got to do what you can. And just like on automatic pilots, grabbed hold of one of the stretches and, and ran down the pitch with this lad um, and got down towards the forest end. And obviously, you know, we spoke earlier about Heisel and perceptions of Liverpool and I can only assume they thought we were having a fight in the sun. And um, they started to like, you know, having a go at us and spitting at us. And and I just was in shock. I just didn't, I couldn't argue with anybody. I couldn't say, you don't know what's going on down there. I just was working on automatic pilots. And I went round the corner to the gym, which I understand is now the souvenir shop at Hillsborough, which is strange to think of. And um, I inspected some sort of mass emergency response, like, you know, come here, lads, and put him there, and we're doing this over there. And there was no one, <laughs> no one. It was just a pile of people. Um, just like piled up like you'd see on a World War One battlefield, just nothing being done for anybody. They were just being left. And um, it just shook me to my core. I thought, we're alone here, you know, we're being watched. No one's helping us. Um, and I ran back up um, and grabbed onto another one and I managed to do just that one more. And then something just broke in me. And I was running, not running, but sort of jogging back up to the centre circle. And I went off towards the stand opposite the one where the clock is. And I just collapsed on the floor and started crying. Just everything hit me all at once. And I don't know how long I was there either. Until some um, South Yorkshire copper came and just kicked me. And I sort of looked up and he said, oh, checking your alive, you scout bastard. 
And I just looked at him like that, and he said, um, "Give me your details." And I was like, you know, it was a lot of buying, buying lads. And uh, he just went, "Yeah, okay." So I gave him all my details. Just milled around in there, and no one was doing anything. There was no like, you know, come over here. Are you in shock? And then eventually they just opened the gates to the side of the pens near that stand, and they just let you walk out. And out we walked into the middle of Sheffield, having just witnessed what we witnessed, and no one did anything for us. Um, got back on a coach. People missing. Don't know if they're dead or not. Don't know if they're just missing. No, my mate wasn't there. No money in my pockets because uh, everything that's happened, jumping around, obviously no mobiles. Um, and just waiting to try and give a ring to me mum and dad just to say, look, I'm all right. Um, and by the time we stopped at the service station, I don't even know where that was. One, I had no money. And two, the key was just, and I just thought, look, I'll just get home. And I got off the coach and um, walked to me mum and dad and my whole family were there just crying because they didn't know if I was alive or I was dead. Um, and I didn't know what to say to anyone. I thought, I've just been to the sort of, you know, to hell. Uh, even though I know that they wouldn't, I kept thinking, well, what do you think about me now? You know, do you think I did something wrong? Um, and I just got hugged by everyone. And back in the 80s, you know, most of my family smoked. They don't now, but, they, you know, filled, the place was filled like a, a boozer and everything. And I went upstairs to bed. Um, and it never really hit me till the next day. And I was just um, on the landing and um, there was um, something on the telly showing someone at the cathedral with a, a choir singing. And it just came out to me and just buckets of tears. And my mum said to me, Dad, you better go and get hold of him. And um, yeah, and that was it. And what were those 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 days and, and weeks like for someone who was there after, after the event? Um... Hard to say. It was just like a blur. It was like, I was just like a ghost walking through my own life. Um, there was no sort of like, because, you know, then working class families and there was no like, let's get you a referral to see him or why don't you go and see that? There was none of that. It was just like, well, you've been there and, and that's that. Um, and I went to college um, and no one knew what to do. In fact, the head teacher of the college sat a lot of us up that had been there on the stage in front of everyone. And he just went, um, these lads were all at Hillsborough. Um, so if in the coming days um, you see them acting a bit weird or they want to talk to you, then, you know, just be aware of that. But you felt ashamed, you know. Um, I felt like I just looked at the floor. I thought, well, I don't want to talk about it. And even then there was no sort of offer of any help. Um and that's when your coping strategy starts. That's when what you've done for years begins because you start it so early that you can't break that cycle. So my cycle was, I wouldn't talk about it. Um, I wouldn't mention it to anybody. And I'd avoid people. So if I was feeling upset or, you know, I'd just be on my own. Um, and if anyone wanted to talk about it, I'd get angry. And my anger got worse as years went by over nothing. I would have arguments over nothing. I'd be on tubes in London arguing with people for no reason. And I knew I was being soft, but I couldn't change the way that I was. Um, and that's when I started to think that I was doing the right thing by burying it. But it's the worst thing I could ever have done. 
And obviously, as we've sort of touched on in, in, in the sort of opening section, there was quite a, a, a UK-wide perception that um, it was Liverpool fans' fault and that that was where the blame lay. As someone who was there and, 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 and from Liverpool and then moved away, what was that like to, to, to witness and to, and to hear and to be part of those accusations almost? It's horrible. You know, you, you hear people saying stuff and um, for that first year when I first moved down, I would give a little abridged version. I never gave the full version, but I'd give a little bit sort of, you know, I was there and all that. But people didn't want to know and people had their own thoughts about what had happened. So they didn't really want to listen to what you had to say. And then everything that happened um, with the media, with the sun, um, and everything that happened, you know, as a result of that, just made everything worse than it could ever have possibly been because we were cast in the role of the villains. I, as a 17-year-old, was made to feel that I was some sort of murderer, that I'd done something to kill them. And so, you know, my perception of myself was I shouldn't tell anyone because I had to stand on them to get out of that pen and perhaps, you know, the guy with the dark hair, did he die? I don't know. But but if I'd, if that was me, then perhaps I killed him. And it made me feel ashamed of everything to do with it. Um, and that was what sort of compounded all the problems I had because I wouldn't talk about it with anyone. And if anyone did speak about it with you, they had their own idea of what they thought had happened and they just wouldn't listen. And you mentioned sort of feelings of... of maybe of shame and of and of guilt, which you, you referenced in the in the tweet that kind of prompted this conversation. What sort of feelings of guilt did you have? Oh, just massive survivor guilt. You know, um, it would just come over in waves at the strangest of times. A loud noise would make me think of the, of the crash barrier. The smell of grass. I love the smell of grass at the football grounds. Um, but the smell of grass would just make me sort of automatically go back there. Any sort of crowd... Um, real survivor guilt. Why am I still here? Was the way I used to think. They should still be here. And if, perhaps if I hadn't pushed down on that fella, he'd still be here. And, you know, did I stand on someone? Did it make them worse? You know, and, and that was what made it as bad as it possibly could be for so many years. Um, and then the birth of my first son was what sort of just sent me over the top. You know, why have I got him? Well, why should I be alive to have him? You know, if if the other people have got out of the pen, perhaps they'd have had kids, and I don't deserve to have him. I don't deserve the the happiness. That was the way that I, I started to think about it. And how did those sort of feelings of guilt manifest themselves day to day? Um, again, avoidance was my big thing. So if I'd having a bad day, I'd take a day off, not tell anyone. Bury my head in the sand, go to bed in the dark, didn't want to speak to anyone. People would say, where have you been? And I wouldn't be around for a couple of days. Um, I'd drink a lot, you know, because if I was like, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a bad drunk, I'm a happy drunk. And so if I was having a drink with people, I could think about other things. But you started to realise it was a crutch that I was leaning on. You know, I had to get to that point. So if I was having a bad time and things started to get worse for me, I'd think, well, I'll take a day off and I'll go out tonight and have a good bender, you know, and I'll be all right and all that. Um, but it, you can't carry on like that because it affects your life. It was affecting me family. Um, you know, 
my wife was in bits thinking about it. I didn't even tell her until we'd been together for about... We've been married 23 years, probably 10 years into being married that I actually told her. You know, she just thought it was some nut job that every now and again would fly off the handle and would need a couple of days off and drank a bit too much. Um, and I couldn't. I, I felt ashamed to tell her. And you also wrote in that in that same tweet that it took you over 30 years to to be able to talk and, and open up. Why do you think that it, it, it took you so long? Um... A couple of things happened, obviously. Everything that's been publicised, as we know, has been happening with the, the, the inquests. I went to the 20th anniversary service and uh, Steve Rotherham spoke about survivors being the heroes. First time I'd ever thought of myself in that way. But it really struck me, you know, that perhaps I'm, I'm not what I've always thought I was. Um, and I've had some great people around me. Um, there's a guy, you, you know, if you... I used to speak to a guy called Pete Carney, who's one of the greatest fellas ever, and I consider him a real friend. And he was at the HJC um, opposite the grounds, and first person I ever sort of poured it all out to. And I see him all the time, and I couldn't love him anymore for what he does for me. And I had people around me, but I still didn't feel strong enough to take it on. I still had my coping mechanisms, and I still thought, I'll get to that point one day. You know, it won't get me forever. And then I just started to sort of look around me and go, my life's slipping by here, you know. I'm not not a young fella. I'm not old, but I'm not I'm not young. Um, and I can't carry on just letting it take me life because at the end of the day, um, whatever, what Hillsborough shows me more than anything else is that I did survive and I need to make it count. And so uh, I bit the bullet and, and thought, well, I'm going to do um, cognitive behaviour therapy. Never done it before. Didn't know whether or not it was going to work. And even more so, um, because everything's online these days. It was online. And I remember thinking, I'll do it, because I want to I wanna try and do it. But I doubt it'll work. And I couldn't have been any more wrong. Because what I achieved with the help of that therapist is a place that I never thought I'd get to, which is um, seeing things in a different light. They call it reprocessing and what I did. And it's almost, it's used to say, you, you know, you're rearranging your kitchen cupboard and all their memories won't come spilling out on you. They'll just come out in a way that you can deal with. And it's coping strategies. Uh, it's positive reinforcements of what happened for me. Um, and it's an eye on, on how I'm going to carry on with that and how I'm not going to let it take control of the rest of my life. And you, you obviously posted about your experiences on Twitter, which was... I thought was especially brave and, and admirable thing to do. Why did you feel the need to talk publicly? Was was that part of your healing process, or um, it was never really officially part of it? But for me, it felt like it, it could be. Um, I felt empowered for the first time. I felt like for the first time, do you know what? You're not beating me anymore. I've beaten you, and um, I'm the one in control now. And I'd never felt like that for for all them years. And um, I'd been able to, to work things round, and it was a session about, I don't know, five, six weeks ago in, in one of the reprocessing sessions. And the big thing has always been the guy with the dark hair that's been, it's haunted me. And, um, you know, we started to work through that. And she helped me to reframe it in such a way 
that I never thought I'd say this word in conjunction with Hillsborough, but I felt elated. I came out of it and I just thought, yeah, that that is something which not only can I live with it, but I'm, I I'm, can be proud of it because 17-year-old me never had the choice, did he? He had to do it. And perhaps that fella helped me to get out. You know, perhaps he was the one that was helping me. Um, and so I wanted to share that because I felt on a, on a, I felt different than I'd ever felt before. Um, I couldn't talk about it for many years, you know, even with people that went and were there and I'd be sitting talking about it, but I'd start to tear up or if it came on the telly, I couldn't stand to look at it. And I suddenly felt like I had the ability to talk about it. And what I love is the fact that I put that tweet out and the responses that I've had have been fantastic. But what's made me feel even better is I've had a lot of personal messages from people who are saying, I was there and this is happening to me. And, and I've been able to talk to them and sort of say, you know, I'm here to listen to you. And me, I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that for years. And I'm suddenly in a position where I'm talking to people. I, I'm, I'm not one for self-gratifying, but I'm proud of myself. And have you um, have you ever been back to to Hillsborough, Kat? No, um, and again, that was always my thing. You know, I won't even go to um, to Yorkshire if I can help it. I think I've been twice in thirty one years. I've got a natural aversion, um, and it's no disrespect to anyone from Yorkshire. And there's a lot of people from Yorkshire, you know, I know people, and I'm not trying to be horrible, but the accent just makes me cringe because it, I associate it with being bossed around by South Yorkshire busies and told, you know, what to do and all the stuff that came after. So I've never been back. But um, again, another thing, I'm going to go back this year. I'm going to go back. I'm going to make a plan to go back. I don't want to go back like a women of prayer and nothing's around that I can't get in. I need to get in. I need to walk down to the front of that pen. Um, but I'm going back this year because it's the last part for me. And I feel like um, once I've done that, the scab's off and then, can heal again just want to sort of dive into the cbt um that you did and sort of the recovery process so what what did it entail and, and how how effective was it how, how long was that period um i think it probably started about the beginning of november last year yeah um, and finished obviously last week um so it's been quite a while i've missed a few sessions because you know you make an appointment for your next week with your therapist and sometimes you can't make it and you just email them and say look i can't do this week and she was great in that respect but I, I fulfilled most of it um and as i said i was quite skeptical because it would have been online you think how is it going to be powerful because you've not got someone to bounce off to look at to get a response from but i found that if i allowed myself to buy into it which I did, then it could be more powerful than anything I've ever done. Because um, she worked me through the hotspots and we did them over like three or four sessions of each different part of it that for me was the, the worst part, you know, the nightmares and, um, and what they were about and how it would affect me. And I, I won't lie, they would just wipe me out. You know, yeah. the really high intensity ones, I'd have to take the next day off work. Well, yeah. I had one in particular talking about that part in the in the pen when I couldn't move, 
And um, I had the most vivid nightmare I'd had in years. And I woke up as stiff as a board. My neck was sore. I felt like I'd been sort of tightly sprung in bed. Um, I've never had that before, that physical reaction. Um, but the more I bought into it and the more I allowed to come out, even though it was online, was just so powerful for me that it was hard to put into words. You know, I could have sat for a hundred sessions with someone who might have yeah. just looked and carried on writing in a, in a legal part or something. But the fact that she was um, into it as much as I was and she spoke about it with me and she gave me some, you know, after session reading and this is what's going on in your mind now and this is how you're reprocessing. I felt that I was getting control of, of my recovery. And I suppose now there's, there's almost a ripple effect. So what would be great is people now hear your story and, and, and they think I can now go and have a look at CBT and I, I might be able to, to speak out. And I suppose that's sort of the organic healing, isn't it, of, of what you're doing? At first you, you heal yourself and now do you feel like you're in a stage where you could help heal others? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak highly enough about it. The last thing, I mean, I never saw her face. Um, and, um, you know, we never sort of had any physical contact. We never met each other. But over the period of time, it became apparent how proud she was of the steps that I'd made. Uh, isn't it? Her name was um, Hazel Dobson, and I can't, she's ever listening to this. She can't, well, I've told her, you know, what she means to me. But, um, yeah, it was just the most empowering process i've ever gone through um and i can't speak highly enough of it and if someone's thinking about it and they're just not sure and I, you know much like a lot of things in life it might not work for you it might be the case that you need to see someone or you might you know but for me because i invested heavily into it it just it broke down a lot of barriers and i would love to be able to carry on helping people um you know, talking about it and being a sounding board for people because what I've realised, as I said earlier, is there's a lot of people still out there. And it's not even just Hillsborough, it's different mental health issues, as we all know. But the people that I know through Twitter for Liverpool, there's so many people still affected by Hillsborough. And I see a lot of familiarities in what they do, in what I would, what I did for years. Yeah, and we, we've spoken to people at various levels of the game, whether it's fans, uh, coaches, players, former players. And one thing we've noticed is like it, it anyone, it can happen to literally anybody, can't it? And, and sport can be the vehicle that drives the ill mental health or the positive mental health. And um, I think it, it is all about using it them in the most powerful way uh, one thing we've we've sort of focused on the last few weeks is just this coronavirus people who who use the the match going the match with the friends is that one weekly thing you do and feeling really isolated by being stuck in the house and those type of things so as you've said it doesn't really discriminate does it so what you need to do is encourage to, to speak up or as you say be a sounding board to somebody else yeah because you know it becomes your norm sometimes. It becomes your life. You think it's not different, but it is. And once you start to realise that, if you can sort of get a hold of that and think, look, this is a behaviour that I can change. And if someone had told me even a year ago that I'd be in a position doing this, I'd have been like, no way. I can't do that. You, you know, that's yeah. it, it has me. You know, I remember saying to someone what, uh, once, you know, it nearly did for me. And it did. You know, it would take me to places that I wouldn't want to go. Dark thoughts, dark times acting in ways that I wouldn't normally act. And if I can do that and I can bring myself back from that brink to get to the point where I'm 
doing this and moreover would love to carry on doing this, then anyone can do it. No, that that's brilliant, Kevin. And and for anyone who does listen to this, are there any other networks that exist for in particularly for sort of Hillsborough survivors that they can go to or is there any way you could signpost them to? Yeah, I mean the people um that were originally around in respect to the HJC, obviously with the fact that the building's been knocked down, they're no longer physically there, but there is a network of people that were there and have an ability to sit and listen to you. And never judge yet, but just listen to how you are and be there. So there's that. There's like a, a community of us. There's um, Hillsborough Survivors Group, which is currently sort of up and running. There's a guy on there I met via Facebook and I met him in the grounds. There's people around that have an ability to help you. There's funding that's been undergoing so that you can be given funding to go and, and take some therapy if that's what you need to do. I think a lot of that is Liverpool, Merseyside-based but there are people out there um, and you're not on your own. No, completely agree with you. And and a bit of a difficult question, obviously, with hindsight, but what would you say to a younger version of yourself, Kev, when you were struggling looking back now? That I needed to talk, that I needed to get it out, that I needed to change the patterns that took over the best part of my life. And, um, and that I did nothing wrong and I had nothing to be ashamed about. And, um, you know, Hold your head up high, as the song goes, because, um, you know, there is that golden sky. That was an incredibly moving story by Kevin there. Ryan, how did you sort of feel whilst we were sat there listening to it? Um, It was one of those stories that had you so engaged and involved in it that you could almost picture the scenes he was painting. I mean... For me, when you when you look back on something you did a few hours ago, you probably couldn't touch on it in the same detail that, that Kevin spoke about it. Uh, and when you think about how long ago it was, I think it just shows you the impact, the, the everlasting impact it'll have on Kevin, uh, that he could talk about like the weather, the, the faces people pulled, the noises that they made. It, it was incredibly moving. And uh, being honest, I don't think I've ever sat there and spoke to somebody directly on, on, on such a topic that made you feel like you were so emotionally involved. I mean, it was b- before I was born and you could just really connect with the story. It was it was so sad to hear, but at the same time, it almost felt like it, it needed to be said because they're the type of stories you don't hear when you hear, hear of Hillsborough. Um, you, you normally get a more sanitised viewpoint or it's just wrapped up in the amount of people that have died or the amount of people that that were um, there on the day, but to hear the the impact on somebody who did survive, it was quite remarkable, really. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ryan. And I think one of the things that we really took away from it was how much of a positive outcome Kevin got from his experience. I, I would almost go as far as say it was it was inspirational. Do you agree, And Absolutely. You know, to come back from from that experience and even though it did take him a, a long time to to get you know into a place where he could be comfortable again it was absolutely amazing to hear and do you know what I, I, I sat there myself listening to him answer those questions that we gave him and you know for 20 minutes when he's talking about that day it's one of the most moving things I've ever heard it really was it was it, it was not nice to hear. I think I played it for my girlfriend and she said, you know, it made me feel sick. And it would, you know, it is really, it's a dark time, but, you know, 
the way he's managed to open up and the way he's managed to come back from that was was truly truly magnificent really I, I'd say um, and hopefully he carries on that way one thing I would also like to pick up on in that in that 20 minute period where you've where he's describing that day is you know there's barely if any talk about being a, a Liverpool fan and you know you can you can just understand that he's a he's a 17 year old lad at football you know he's not he's not talking about what team he supports you know he's he's a young lad watching a tragedy unveil and I think that's the the biggest takeaway. You know, we often hear that it, you know, it isn't about football fans or what allegiance you're to with Hillsborough. It's it's about the '96 when fans never never came home that day. And I think that retelling of that story from Kevin was it was really poignant to to hear because you know you, you do realise that it it wasn't about being a football fan. It wasn't about the scarves. It wasn't about who's got who up front. It wasn't about that. It was it was about just being a 17-year-old lad in the midst of a, an absolute horror. And I think one of the things that we all picked up on that was particularly impressive was the, the clarity and the composure that, that Kevin spoke with about what is clearly such an emotive subject. Katie, how, how does somebody get to a point where they're able to speak like that about something that's had such a profound impact on their life? I think that's a really good question and I don't actually think there is a cast iron answer. I think it's very subjective to each individual. I think time plays a huge part of it. Um, but for what he went through, you know, not only did he have the initial trauma and then he was re-victimised with the ongoing legal battles, um, the fact that he has managed to get to a point where he feels like it's important for for him to speak and for others to hear him speak. You know, he now values that that experience has kind of given him some kind of a platform to help others as well as himself on his recovery from the initial trauma. Um, I'd like to think it was a cathartic process, him telling his story, um, and like what you guys were saying, you know, he was very much when he spoke, it was like he was he was back in that time. You know, everything was spoken as if it was it had just happened. It was all very clear and very visual um, because that's how much of a profound um, trauma it's actually had on the way his mind is able to go back so quickly to his photographic memory. Um but I just think, yeah, I think it takes time and I think you have to feel able and ready and like there's enough support for you to reach out and to feel able is also something that's very individual. To feel able to get to a point where you ask for help and you feel able to tell your story you need to be at a point where you feel like people are going to be responsive and accept mm -hmm. your version of accounts. Um, and obviously with him being part of a collective, that's enabled um, that to be a platform for the victims to speak out, um, which I hope also inspires other people who go through trauma who may feel like they're never going to stop being stuck in the re-experiencing cycle. I hope that encourages them to do something very similar 
and realize that they may not always feel like they are stuck living the same trauma every day you know there is there is hope at the end of it fantastic thanks katie and thanks to to ryan and to ant for your time today and, and thanks to you all for listening um our next episode will be dropped on monday the 13th of april uh, we'll be speaking with former Norwich, Colchester, Exeter, Cheltenham, Dagenham, Reading striker, Jamie Curiton. You can find more information about us on our Twitter page, which is at marking underscore man. And we'll now just leave you with, leave you with Kevin's squeaky bum time is quick fire answers. Thank you for listening. Uh, so, Kevin, your best moment supporting Liverpool. Am I allowed to? Yeah, you can have two, mate. <laughs> well, it would always have been, and my wife knows this, it's Istanbul. Um, I always used to say it's the greatest night of my life. She used to hate me at first, but now she's such, she knows what it, what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, lucky enough to be there. Um, that was my first physical European Cup final, um, and I never don't think I'll ever see a better one. So um, I won't bore everyone with that because we all know what happens. But very close run to it, sort of sitting on its knee. It's got to be Barcelona. Um, it's again to be there that night. Um, I went the away leg. We didn't play bad, but I thought they would score at Anfield. I thought we'd win, but I thought they'd score. Um, and for us to achieve what we achieved that night, I don't think I'll ever see a better game at Anfield. Um, Kev, are you scouts or English? Scouse, 100%. <laughs> Scouse, every, every second of the day. Kev, Michael Owen, thoughts? Um, Mank. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not having him. Uh, what's the saddest you've ever been when a player left? Um, I would have to say probably Torres, because okay. at that time, um, you know, we'd had them sort of European Cup finals and he came in at the end of that and we thought right that's the last part now we're going to win the league and some of them um, first couple of months with him was just like pure man love wasn't it I mean we've all replaced him now with Van Dijk but um, everyone fell in love with him you know the bounce was fantastic I remember bouncing around Milan you know waiting and he scored the goal in the San Siro and for him to leave that was just the hardest thing but um I look back on it now with a bit of hindsight and I think, do you know what? First set of American owners and Roy Hodgson, even I might have left. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, the happiest you've ever been when a player? Um, there's, yeah, there's a few there. There's a sort of, um, you could give a sort of honorary mention to Neil Ruddock and uh, Milan Jovanovic oh, wow. um, and Andre Voronin. But for me, <laughs> it's got to be El Hajduf. Oh, Surely yeah. the greatest villain in Liverpool history. And as far as I can think, the one person that everyone's united in thinking, what an horrible piece of work he was. Yeah. So, um, yeah, El Hadjduf. With all that's going on, Kev, will you lift the Premier League title this season? Yes. Um, I'm saying yes, because if I say no, then um, it's going to make me feel even worse. I spend every day looking at Twitter rumours, just trying to find out what's the truth and what's not. In my mind, I know that having you know, done over 80% of the season, they've got to give it to us anyway. But I want to win it. I want to see us win it. Um, so I'm going to say yeah, only because you can't start a new season until you've finished the last one. And no one's going to stop us from winning it once we restart. Yeah. Kev, have you got a uh, 
A favourite brand of toilet roll. <laughs> I thought about that. Um, I, I haven't really, because at the minute I'm just glad to see any toilet roll. I never thought of <laughs> sheer toilet roll. Um, my wife came out of the supermarket the other Saturday with a, a nine-pack, and it was almost like she had the European Cup in her hands. <laughs> so um, as long as it's not the 1970s uh, toilet roll you used to get at school that used to hurt you when you were on the toilets, then I'm all right with any toilet roll. <laughs> okay, Kev, what's going to end first? The coronavirus outbreak or Everton's trophy drought? We all know the answer to that, don't we? There's probably an undiscovered pandemic in the middle of nowhere now that's going to come to fruition, pass through civilization, and be <laughs> solved before Everton wins something again. Um, I can't imagine you'd want to um, imagine life without him, but if Klopp left tomorrow, who would you want to replace him? Uh, I suppose the, the easy answer, and a lot of people would say Stevie G, but... Um, for me, I don't know if he's quite ready for it, and I don't know whether or not it would weigh too heavily on him. Mm. So, um, common sense would say Pepe Linders, um, Klopp's number two, who's basically, you know, his sounding board, and I think he, he might well have picked up enough to take on the job, a bit sort of Roy Evans style. But um, if I had my choice of outside managers, Pochettino all day long. I mean, what he did, the style of football... And um, I just still can't believe that Spurs got rid of him because um, I think he's a great manager and I think he's going to find, hopefully not United, I think he's going to find someone's going to want him soon and I would have him. As long as you uh, as long as long you keep your hands off Mickey Mellon, Kev, then you're all right. <laughs> um, and then finally, have you ever been caught on the telly with your scarf upside down? No, I'll make a conscious effort to make sure it's the right way up. I mean, you know, you've got to have it right, haven't you? But I have been caught on the telly a few times jumping around like a loon because my season ticket is right near where they celebrated a couple of goals last season. And I look at myself and think, you're far too old for that. Um, that's all of our questions, Kev. I just want to say on, on, on behalf of, of all of us at, at my mark, and, and thank you so much for your time, Kev. It's been amazing. Um, and yeah, I hope the uh, hope rest of your evening, the rest of your week and, and rest of the, uh, the lockdown and and everything goes well, and, and you know you continue your, your positive steps, mate. No, great. It's been great to uh, virtually meet you all, and I've enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Spot really. on, Kev. Cheers, mate. Thank you very Thank much. You, Kev. Thanks, Kev. Pirlo, Seydorf, Shevchenko! Good save! I don't know how much Jetsy Dudek saw that, but he threw himself away to his left to deny Andrew Shevchenko. Hell of a strike, right, as well, because by the time he got to the ball... Reset. Touchdown by Cafu. In towards Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Here we go! Steven Gerrard puts a grain of doubt in the back of Milan minds and gives hope to all the many thousands of Liverpool fans inside the stadium. Captain! Again, a little good link. Xavi Alonso. Harman. Hit by Smitsa. It's yeah. in! Start of something big. Carragher into Barros. He's laid it off. It's Gerard. He was held. He's given the penalty. 
he's given the penalty in his second half Stephen Gerrard and drag them back into this game he has to go doesn't he good well, to I mean Cafu is right there but but I mean Lewis just denied him he's got second chances if Shenchenko misses. He saved it! The European Cup is returning to England and to Anfield. Liverpool are champions of Europe again. Liverpool have their hands on the European Cup.